You're listening to the Comparative Media Studies Colloquium Podcast, a production of the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. Episodes are available on the iTunes Store, but we invite you to see us in person here in Cambridge. So get updates about upcoming events, each featuring top media speakers from MIT and around the globe, by joining the growing Comparative Media Studies community on Twitter, Facebook, and our website at cms.mit.edu. Thanks everyone for coming to our first CMS colloquium of the academic year. Uh, today I, uh, I, I'm here to introduce Scott Nicholson. Uh, if, I hope that's the talk you came here to listen to. <laughs> um, my name is Philip Tan. I'm the executive director for the Singapore MIT Gambit Game Lab, which is a research group under Comparative Media Studies. The uh, Comparative Media Studies department has, uh, I believe, a single uh, a, a, a speaker every single week uh, from now uh, um, through the entire academic year. And if you're interested in looking at the schedule for that, that's on cms.mit.edu. Uh, if you're interested in finding more about the Gambit Game Lab and the game research that, 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 that we do here in MIT, that's just gambit.mit.edu. Um, and there's a number of us all around the lab. You can talk to me after this talk. Or you can talk to Scott. Um, because Scott's a visiting, uh, a, a visiting faculty mem member from Syracuse U University, and he's with Comparative Media Studies working with the, with the Gambit Game Lab this semester. And I'm really, really happy that he could join us. Uh, and, and we've got a lot of, stuff, uh, of projects that we've been talk th thinking about, uh, about working with him. Um, he's also guest lecturing at uh, CMS 608, which is uh, game design. Uh, undergrad and graduate class uh, that that just started um, this fall. Well, actually, we've been teaching it for a few years, but but you know we we started first class yesterday. Um, he's a he's an associate professor at the School of Information Studies at Syracuse U University, and uh, uh, he's also the author for um, of the book Everyone Plays at the Library, which was published by Information Today last year. Um, right now, he's doing research about game design as a pedagogical tool and about gaming in libraries. Um, he's a board game de de designer. Uh, he uh, does a game called uh, Tulip Mania 1637, which was commercially published in 2009. This is a game about the, uh, actually, if you're going to talk about it. I I'll talk about it briefly, right. yeah. I'm not going to spoil it for, uh, for you. But we've got a copy of it at the lab, so if you want to check it out. Um, or you could just buy it, which will be really <laughs> awesome. Um, now, um, Scott, He's also an active board game podcaster and YouTube cast video podcaster. Um, he's the ho he was the host of the video series Board Games with Scott uh, for five years. That's actually how I first got to know him uh, and uh, got to learn more about board games uh, than I had time to play, uh, which was <laughs> great. Um, and uh, without much further ado, Scott. Well, thank you for that welcome, and hi there, everyone. I'm curious, there's a whole lot of people here. How many folks have seen my Board Games with Scott stuff? Well, hi there, everyone. This is kind of like Board Games with Scott Live. Uh, <laughs> so what's going to go on during this colloquium is I'm going to talk first talk a little bit about myself. One of the ideas behind these, this series is it gives uh, the people in the department and the students a chance to know what I'm up to, a chance for me to make some connections. I'm going to be around here through May, and one of my goals of coming here is to get involved in different sorts of projects. So I'm going to spend a little bit more time talking about my path from where I started to where I am now, just because there might be some aspects of that that might be interesting to you, so you can come and see me and we can talk about projects that we may want to work on together. 
And I'm going to talk a little bit about libraries and games. I've been doing research in that for about five years, and I'll talk about the results of some of that research. And then move into talking about modern board games and what I mean by that term, and a little bit about what those are. And then we'll move into the meat of the topic, where I'm going to go through a variety of uh, board game mechanisms. And so we'll kind of stumble through this over the next 60 to 75 minutes, and then there'll be some time after that for some questions and answers and discussion. So a little bit about my academic path. I grew up on a horse farm in rural Oklahoma, yeehaw, um, and went to the University of Oklahoma where I actually got my first degree in mathematics and computer science. Um, and it's interesting because ever since that degree I've worked outside of math and coming back here, it's a bit of coming back home. Uh, during this year I'm also a uh, resident scholar down at Simmons Hall, so I'm living there with the undergrads. And I'm having some really interesting discussions with those students who are math majors as well, bringing me back to the 1980s. Uh, and then after I did my degree, I worked as a computer person for the University of Oklahoma and then decided to do something that a lot of people with a math background do, become a librarian. Very natural connection there. <laughs> so I did my master's degree in library and information science and I became a librarian at Texas Christian University. And what I found was having that math background actually was very good in the library space because there's a lot of patterns that are going on, a lot of things with management and dealing with data that's going on in the world of libraries. And so they can use folks with comfort in math and comfort with statistics in the library space. I did that for a while and then I decided to go into my PhD at the University of North Texas. And I did my PhD in information science. I did a lot of work in statistics and data mining and that sort of thing. And my dissertation was actually creating a tool that could look at a web page and tell you if that web page was academic research. The idea is that it would be an overlay search, so you do a Google search or whatever, and then you'd, you'd run and have this overlay that would show you what of that was academic research. So I could locate all the academic research sitting out there in gray literature and on faculty web pages and things like that. Then after that, I actually went to work for Citibank. And so I, I left academia. I said, you know, I'm going to go try the corporate world. So I went to work for Citibank as a statistician. And so because I knew, when I, after doing my dissertation, I did a lot of statistical work, but I knew that I didn't get really good at it because you do a lot of data collection and then you do a little bit of analysis. And I wanted to do a lot of analysis. So at Citibank, I was busy dealing with 9 million customer records, 5,000 pieces of information about each customer, and my days were spent doing nothing but generating statistical models to predict who they should give credit to and things like that. Well, I learned that Citibank was not a good match for me, and so I fled back to academia and uh, joined the Syracuse University School of Information Studies. So for people that don't know School of Information Studies, what it is, it's a combination. They've grown out of library schools. Some have grown out of computer programs. Um, it's bringing in information technology and people and management. A lot of the students go into IT management and things like that, but it's also where librarians are now trained. And so I was a department chair there for five years, running the library and information science department. Um, and so anyway, what I did during that time is I actually came up with something called bibliomining. So bibliometrics is looking at big, patterns in research uh, data. So looking at who wrote what and what else they wrote and who wrote stuff with whom and coming up with patterns from that. And I was combining those things with methods from data mining to look at something called bibliomining to help libraries do a better job getting resources out to their users. The problem is that I started this research shortly after 9-11. Now, if you don't know, there was a little thing that came out called the Patriot Act which allowed the government to go into a library and request all the information that that, government, or that library had about an individual. And they weren't allowed to tell the individual that they, they were being tracked. This caused some issues in libraries, and many libraries just began deleting all of their data wholesale to say, well, we won't let the government get that. 
that caused a bit of a wrinkle in, <laughs> in my goal of trying to look for patterns in the data. So actually, I wrote pieces on avoiding the great data wipe of OT3 and did a lot of work on privacy and how, how you could still find patterns, Amazon-like patterns, about people without tracking the individuals that were involved. Now, I'm going to step away for a minute, talk a little bit about my gaming path, and we'll see where the two of them meet. So I've been a gamer ever since I was a little kid. I grew up with the Atari 2600 in my hand. I was so upset when the Nintendo came out and it had two buttons, because I couldn't do that. It was one button, one button on a joystick. That was good. I grew up with the TRS-80 Color Computer Model 1 with its uh, chiclet keys, learning how to do some programming. I grew up playing chess. Uh, I grew up playing a lot of board games. Now, the problem is that I grew up, as I mentioned earlier, in rural Oklahoma on a farm where it was miles away from anyone else. So many times I would just set up these board games and play each position so that I could explore the board game because I didn't have anyone to play these games with. Now, in high school and college, I got into role-playing games. And so I was playing Dungeons and & Dragons and things like this. And then I entered what some might see as the lowest form of geekery, live-action role-playing. And so I did, through college, I did live-action role-playing. I dressed up in funny outfits, took padded weapons, ran around in the woods and beat each other with it. Um, and what's funny is, though, even though I did that for a while, that was actually what allowed me to do this kind of thing right now, because it allowed me to come out of my shell and really have a good time with life. So, and that actually also led to my first game publication. I'm one of the authors of this. It's Cthulhu Live. It's the, a live-scale system for doing the HP Lovecraft world of Cthulhu and allow you to play in it. Doesn't that sound great? Um, anyway, this was my first game design. I was one of the co-designers on this and helped design the combat system for Cthulhu Live. But about that time, I stumbled into a game shop in Dallas and saw this unusual German game, Adel Verflichstedt. And this game was, uh, I didn't know anything about it, but I bought it and brought it home and really enjoyed it. I said, wow, this is really neat. It's very different from other games that I've seen. And this was in the early 1990s. And that really got me hooked on different board games and modern board games and going onto the web and finding these board games from Germany, which I'll talk about in a little bit later. Now, the path started to converge. So, at the School of Information Studies, they've been doing online education for about 15 years. They've been really leading the library world in online education. And one of the things I wanted to do was more video content in my class, but I knew I wouldn't get good at it until I had a project where I could make videos on a regular basis. Well, I had all these German board games sitting around, and one frustration people had is they didn't know anything about them. They didn't have any way to figure out the rules, so I decided to start Board Games with Scott. I started this in 2005 and started making these videos about board games and posting them on the internet. And that got me involved with board game publishing and all of that and learning about how that all worked, which actually ended up leading to the contacts to let me have my first board game. So Tulip Mania 1637 came out in 2009, and it is a stock market game that's based around a bubble market. So you are an unscrupulous investor, you are busy trying to mess up the other, other unscrupulous investors as you raise the market up to ridiculous places and try to jump out before it crashes around you. Uh, sort of just like real life. But anyway, so this came out 2009. I've got four more board games that are now with different publishers that should be coming out over the next year or two. And this is an active area. I'm continuing to develop board games for the commercial market. Now, I was at a conference, an American Library Association conference. Yes, we're, we're pretty wild, we librarians, you know. So this was at a library conference. I saw a Dance Dance Revolution mat going on. I saw this person, Jenny Levine, who goes by the Shifted Librarian. She works for the American Library Association and is a really well-known blogger in the area. And I saw the Dance Dance Revolution, and I thought, well, that's interesting. So I said, hey, what's this all about? She said, well, why don't you dance with me? Now, it's interesting because that's kind of like, you know, going out and playing golf with the executives. It was kind of like, could I keep up with her? Could I at least show that I had some conscious uh, awareness of Dance Dance Revolution? And thankfully, I used this to work out my basement. So I did quite well. As you can see, it works quite well. 
<laughs> anyway, um, so what happened during this is I saw that at that point she'd written some, some materials on video games for teens and libraries. The idea that libraries could set up video games to attract teens in. Now by this time I had engaged with the spectrum of game types. And I knew that there were a lot more games out there than video games. And I knew that gaming could draw a lot more people than just teens. Just like the library is out there trying to draw people from cradle to cane, as they say. That's the idea, to get people from, from birth to death. Uh, games, there's games for that whole spectrum of age group too. And you could match that up. And I said, you know, maybe I'm going to do something about this. So I started the library game lab of Syracuse. And my goal was to really try and understand what was going on with gaming and libraries. And so that started in 2008. And what I, the, I did some research projects. So the first big thing I did was a census. What we did is we actually went out, actually not a census, we did a survey. The census came later. So with the, with the survey we did, we randomly selected 400 public libraries out of the 10,000 public libraries that are out there. Randomly selected 400, called every one of them, talked to them about what they do with gaming and libraries. Actually got a 96% response rate on that survey. The librarians were very interested in talking to us. And what we found is about 75% of public libraries supported gaming in some way. And about 40% of them actually ran programs where you could go to the library and play games. About 20% circulated games. I said, well, that's interesting. That's a lot larger than we expected on how many libraries are working with games. I also did some other research. I went and explored the history of games and libraries. And I was able to trace gaming and libraries all the way back to the mid-1800s. In fact, the oldest chess club that still meets in the US is in San Francisco and was founded in a library in San Francisco and still meets in that library today. This was about 1855. During this same time in the UK, libraries were putting together smoking parlors, gaming halls, and billiard rooms with the idea of luring people away from the public houses. They wanted to get them out of the pubs and bring them into the library where they could have good, wholesome entertainment. And so then I traced that forward through the Great Depression, through libraries were supporting games and puzzle contests and toy libraries so that kids who couldn't afford toys could check them out of the library. And so over time, libraries have continued to support games. So a lot of what I've been doing is saying, hey, libraries, you've been doing this for a very long time. It's not something new, and it shouldn't be just focused on this world of video games and teens. We've been at this for a while. Now, I also began doing an annual census where I'd put out a call on the library list to say, if you ran a gaming program in the last year, tell me about it. So what I learned is that different libraries have different goals for doing gaming programs. Public libraries were doing gaming programs either to draw people in, to draw on the underserved, to draw on teens and folks like that, or to have a gaming program that went along for their, their normal users. So they might have a book club, people talk about a book, and then they play a game related to that book. But it also, libraries found that they could become a community hub by having games. I helped the Fayetteville Public Library start a gaming program. And what actually happened is over that summer, I watched as the teens and the seniors came in and played games. They put the, the gaming program right after the senior computer classes. So they began to get the seniors in. The seniors began playing Wii Bowling with the teens. And I'd watch week after week as they would come in and engage each other and talk to each other. And I think, now this is cool. What other place in the community that's non-commercial, non-religious, can seniors and teens who don't know each other come together and talk that's not creepy? You know? And so <laughs> there is, there's a lot of libraries that are realizing the power of games as being able to be spaces in the community where people can come together across demographic lines, across language barriers if you select the right games, and come together around the game table. And so this is one of the main things that public libraries are doing. School libraries, those libraries in kindergarten through 12, are also using games in a couple different ways. About half that, that told me they were using games were doing it as a curricular support activity. 
So the kids were learning something in class, they come to the library and play games. The other half, however, were doing recreational gaming programs either before or after school. And what the librarians reported was that this was a place where those kids who like to play games, who may not have a large circle of friends, they tended to sit on in the corner of the playground with their Nintendo DS playing by themselves, they could come together, they could all sit in the library quietly around a table staring at the Nintendo DB- DS playing by themselves. But at least they found that the kids were engaging with each other a little bit more, coming out of their shells, and more importantly, it was a way for the librarian to say, hey, your hobby, the thing that's important to you, is okay. In academic libraries, they're using games in two different ways. One way is at the start of a semester, they're using games as a, hey, come in, get to know the campus semester. One library in Texas actually did a murder mystery where they had the staff of the library be all of the culprits. And so the players in the game had to do research on who was working in the library at what times, what were they doing, And so if you think about what that would happen, then as the students played the games, they got to know who worked in the library, at what hours, and what they were doing. So it's a pretty cool way of connecting that all up. Uh, The other way that academic libraries use games is actually in um, end of semester, goof off, blow off, stress kind of things. Special libraries, special libraries are a term for any library that's not public, academic, or school. So like a law library, a medical library, things like that. They're using games in in different ways based upon the type of library. I'm actually consulting with the State Department. The State Department has libraries and embassies around the world. And what they're looking to do is they're trying to get out information about the United States. And they've put together these things they call e-journals, these 40-page documents about culture in the U.S., democracy in you, and things like that. So what I've been doing is working with them to create games that they could run with their patrons around the world to help them understand the content. Because as you might imagine, a lot of people are not running to these English language things about American culture and you. So different types of special libraries are using games in different ways. Now, I also worked with the American Library Association to start National Games Day at your library. This has happened the last three years. And so the first year, we actually got Hasbro to partner with it. And Hasbro sent copies of the same board game to every public library in the U.S. They paid for it all. And our goal was to have one day where as many people as possible came to public libraries and played games. Now, this map up here is from the 2010 National Gaming Day. The numbers on the map are the number of libraries that participated. On this day in 2010, about 30,000 people played games in libraries. That's pretty exciting, especially given if you flip it over from the game industry perspective, if we reach out to industry and say, hey, if you donate something to libraries, 30,000 people are going to have a chance to go and try your stuff. That's a pretty interesting connection there. So National Game Day at your library this year is November 12, 2011. So if you have a public library, call them up and say, hey, are you doing anything for National Gaming Day? And if they're not, say, hey, can I help you do something? So a lot of libraries are trying to do that. Now, what I actually found is that As I worked with libraries, I got a little frustrated because some libraries were doing game programs that didn't really relate to their library goals. So like, and that would usually happen because there'd be a staff member or a patron who was really enthusiastic about something. In my book, I actually wrote a chapter called The Gamers, where I talk about overly enthusiastic folks. So for example, World of Warcraft. Uh, How many of you are World of Warcraft players? Oh, wow, okay. (laughs) That's because you're at a place you have to work. (laughs) So... Uh, What would happen is a library would try to put together a World of Warcraft program because they had a staff member that really liked World of Warcraft. There actually is a guild in World of Warcraft of libraries and librarians. Um, So they put together this, and there's a lot of cost to that, a lot of expense, a lot of trouble, and then some patron comes by and says, hey, why are you using my tax dollars this way? 
And I said, okay, this is a problem. So I began to think about how I could help libraries create gaming experiences that were more justifiable. So what I did is I, I, I put together this model, and this model is the concept of the game experience. When I talk about games, I talk about more than just the board and the box, more than just the screen and the, and the console. It's the, it's the game and the players and the context where the players are. All of that comes together to make this game experience. And libraries and schools and PE departments are trying to facilitate that. And it's a little different when you're trying to facilitate gaming than it is when you're just playing games at home. Now, I'm not going to go into this model here because this is not today's topic, but, I, but my book does. <laughs> so I used that model and analyzed it for the important points of difference between game types. And I came up with the Snacks Game Archetypes. Five game archetypes, and the idea, what I've done is I've, I've grouped all of gaming somewhere into one of these archetypes. And the idea is that a library starts with their missions and goals. Based upon those, they pick one of these five archetypes, and then based upon that, they think about their audience and budget and select a game. Then they're able to assess, did the game meet the goals? So that they have a justifiable game experience. So my goal was, and th so that, that's what the book really is. The book starts, helps the library go through that whole process of going from their missions and goals to picking the games. It's about 100 game reviews mapped into these different categories. And so that's what I've been doing for libraries up to this point. And the other thing I did is I helped libraries run gaming programs. We set up the Traveling Game Lab. We traveled across New York State to a bunch of libraries and helped libraries understand what sort of games are out there. And I started to notice some patterns. I would notice we'd set up video games and board games and other sorts of games. And I'd see scenes like this with the video games. I'd see, you know, this is your typical video game view. What do you see? What is everyone looking at? So everyone's sitting around staring at a screen. And we'd also set up board games. And we'd see scenes like this. We'd say people engage with each other. And I began to say, you know, this is pretty interesting. There's a real difference here between face-to-screen games and face-to-face -face games. <laughs> And now, so this is research project number one that I want to explore while I'm here, is to look at the difference in social engagement with different types of games, face-to-screen games, face-to-face -face games, and now with the same board games available in many different platforms on a, a large surface, on an iPad, which sits on the middle of a table, on the Xbox where you all stare at the screen, or tabletop, to see what happens when you take the game, same game experience and you have different people play it to see how that changes the social interactions. So this is big research question number one I want to explore, social engagement around the board game table. But what I found was that the most impactful library program was game design programs. When the libraries helped the patrons make games, that did some cool stuff. So the Georgetown County Library in Georgetown, South Carolina, a very rural, uh, economically depressed area, had kids come in, they began to make games. They brought in people from the games industry to talk about, hey, here are jobs you could get in gaming. And these kids who really had no career aspirations began going to the local community colleges in areas like in literature and in programming and in art because they'd gotten inspired through game creation. I said, now that's cool. Now we're getting to something really interesting with gaming and libraries. If you can have game design programs that get people engaged with what's going on. A number of libraries have worked with the Media Lab with Scratch programs as well. So I began to see some really interesting stuff happen. And, but what I noted, so this, this kind of said, well, that's cool. Let's take a look at the theoretical background. And I began exploring constructionism and said, wow, MIT is doing really neat stuff with all this. However, it's all video games. I said, you know, in the last 20 years, there's been a lot of growth in the board game industry, a lot of interesting developments that have gone on that's being ignored by a lot of the research going on with this. And I started to think a lot about that. 
you know, why, why consider adding face-to-face -face games as a tool? So the idea here, I'm not suggesting that it's a replacement for video games, but it's another type of game creation program is creating face-to-face -face games, board games and card games. There are some times where they may be the more appropriate choice. The first time would be if you want to have a game that has a lot of social engagement. Because a role-playing game or something where you want people to engage with each other, that gets hard to do when everyone is sitting at separate screens playing with each other, and they may find a tabletop game works better. The realities of infrastructure, as I started to talk to libraries and educators about why they weren't using game design, the reality was that in most of our classrooms, it looks like this. There are not computers for all the kids to use. And so that there's a reality there of the infrastructure of what's going on, um, and that the, the teachers can't usually afford to bring in computers, but they can afford index cards, they can afford post rewards, they can afford markers, and get going with game design quite quickly. What I found is last year there was a global game jam, and the global game jam's been going on for a few years. Last year they added on a board and card game components to the global game jam. Now what was interesting with that is, as I watched in Syracuse, and I'll be, I'll, actually I'll put you on the spot here. Um, so as I watched in Syracuse, we had some people doing board games, we had some people doing digital games. And we found the people doing board games who were not coders, had working prototypes quite quickly compared to the people fighting with digital games. Did you have similar things with your, with your place up here? Oh. <laughs> Okay, so if the goal is not to teach digital literacy, because a lot of times the using Scratch, using a tool like that to have people make video games, part of what you learn from that is programming. But if the goal is to help someone teach chemistry or make this a school project where the kids have just studied Romeo and Juliet and now you're going to have them make games about Romeo and Juliet, using a tabletop game can allow the kids to get into game design much faster. If that goal is just that exploration, that constructionism, that creating something neat, that can happen much more quickly with the board game space. There's fewer frustrations and hurdles. I don't know if you know this, but the game design class that's being taught right here, right now, for first year, stu first year students, in, the students starting in game design, they are learning how to make board games because the systems are evident. You can't hide behind the systems. Everything's out there, and it's much easier to debug problems. So you find that, that in the game design programs, they figure this out and said, hey, we want to start our students making board and card games. So now I want to say, hey, maybe we need to take what we've been doing with constructionism and video game design and try making some board game design tools, kind of like we have Scratch to help with video game design, similar platforms to help with board game design. Claypool and Claypool had an article in the ACM and what they did is they actually had students start with video games, making video games to teach a topic in class, and they had this, another group of students start with board game prototypes and then make video games. And they found that the path of board game prototyping into a video game actually ended up with games that had the content much better integrated in the final product. So it's, it can be an interesting thing to explore more, and so this is kind of getting to my research question number two, is really exploring how do we take the great things that have been done here in the last 20 years with video game creation, and what can we port over to make tools to help people with tabletop game creation? Now when I've done this with folks, I typically see games that people create that look like one of three things. Monopoly, chess, or Trivial Pursuit. You either see roll and move games, you see abstract strategy games, and you see I'm going to ask you a question games, because that's what people are comfortable with. These are the game mechanisms that people are comfortable with seeing. 
So what I've realized that we need to do is provide more mechanism ideas. Now, this is a game store shelf from Germany, actually. And what's gone on in Germany has been a very interesting home of modern board games. Now, modern board games, I'm using that term. Uh, you could also use the term Euro games or designer games. I'll talk about why in a little bit. Germany's been the home of these games. Why Germany? Well, what happened after World War II in game design is the Americans got really good at making war games. We were very good. That, that's what America did well. So sort of after World War II, we excelled at making these interesting war games that modeled battles. They were very intriguing. You could learn a lot about history by playing them. That's what we did well. But in Germany, they didn't allow the manufacturing of military-based toys after World War II. So the games that they made had to look for other forms of conflict resolution. So you had more economic models coming up and other sorts of games. And so this continued to develop a very important award called the Spiel des Jahres, Game of the Year Award, got started in Germany in 1979. And what this award, it was the press that got together and they selected the best game for families each year. This award nowadays and it's still running to this day, and if you are a board game designer and you want to make money, your entire goal should be to make a game that can win this prize. And the reason why, so games that get nominated for this prize might sell 20 or 30,000 copies. The game that wins this prize will sell three or 400,000 copies. If you go to a German flea market, you will see all of the Spiel des Jahres winner games sitting out in people's piles because a lot of German families automatically buy whatever game wins this award. It's a huge award. The other thing that happened in Germany was the Spiel Fair in Essen, Germany got going. The Spiel Fair started in 82, and what it was was a chance for families to come together and play all the new games coming out. Now, I've been over there once, and what's interesting about it and how it's different than our, our cons, our, our conventions in the U.S., is that families come. It's a whole family, and what you do, the way it's set up, is each large game publisher has a bunch of tables. You go and you sit down at a table, and people that work for the company bring the new company's new games to your table and teach them to you. So families, this is in October, it's in a couple weeks, families use this as the time to decide what they're going to be getting for Christmas. Now, let's talk about attendance. Now, how many of you, have you heard of PAX? PAX is a large, it, it's the largest gaming uh, convention that we have in the U.S. About 70,000 people went to PAX. There's a PAX Prime and a PAX East. Uh, you probably know of it because PAX East was here. PAX East had about 70,000. PAX Prime had about 70,000. Essen had more people than both PAXs put together. Over 150,000 people go to the Essen Game Fair for board games. It's wild. I've been there once. <laughs> It's, it, it, and I came back with three large 60-pound suitcases of games, which was really interesting trying to get on the train because the train stops and the door opens, and I throw the first one on, and I throw the second one on, and the doors close. <laughs> and thankfully, the conductor saw my panic. She's like, come here, fast, 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 and I'm running with this 60-pound bag, and I throw it on. And so anyway, um, so the Essen Game Fair was also part of what got interest in doing good games. So these are some of the winners of the Spiel des Jahres games. If you're not into the board game hobby, you probably haven't heard of a lot of these. You might have heard of a few. In 1980, Rumikob won. You may have heard of that one. That one has a U.S. release. 1983, Scotland Yard was picked up by Mattel and then released in the U.S. But a lot of these games that have been picked as the best family game of the year are pretty quiet. Now, what happened with one game called The Settlers of Catan? How many folks have played this game? All right, that's what I like to see. Yay, I'm at MIT. <laughs> you can imagine I don't quite get that show of hands at a lot of places that I go. 
So the Settlers of Catan, this was seen as the game that got a lot of people into and seeing the world of modern board games. Came out originally in 1995, got brought over here by Mayfair, and a lot of people saw it, and now you can actually buy it at Target. And that's exciting because that's now taking some of these types of games and getting them out of the smelly game shops and into the large mass market. Well, I don't know. The targets can be pretty smelly when all the new students are moving in and buying everything in the housing section, um, which I had to deal with because I also was moving at the same time. And it's like, wow, you have no pillows. you know. <laughs> but anyway, The Sellers of Catan was the game that a lot of people have cut their teeth on this world of modern Euro games. And so some of the common points of difference between these games and the mass market games that we've seen on our store shelves for a long time, one is the role of the game designer. In most of these games, if you look at the cover of the box, you'll see who designed it. And that's why they're called designer games, because the designer becomes an important person. And, and so that's actually, for those of you thinking about game design, if you go into board and card game design, that's a great way to have fame. Because if you go into some large software house, you'll be one of 2,000 people. But here, it's like your name on the box. Frequent and indirect player engagement. So, pl so two things these games do. One, they give you turns frequently. They have you involved with the game quite frequently. And the other thing is that they tend to don't have you fighting each other directly. Instead, you're doing things indirectly. That's, that's a generalization. There are more and more games that have direct player engagement. But typically, you see less direct player engagement than, say, something like Risk. That they, these games don't have player elimination, typically. Because of that, they tend to have a fixed game length, most of the time running between one and two hours. And you stop at a certain point, and you assess how everyone has done, and you see who's the best because of that assessment. So the game has a reasonable length, as compared to how long do you want to play Monopoly for? You know? oh, OK, here's a question. How many of you use free parking when you play Monopoly? Put the money on free parking, and you land there. Don't! <laughs> For the love of God, stop! That is not in the rules. And the whole thing it does is, okay, what's the ending condition in Monopoly? When everyone but one person runs out of money. The thing with like taxes and all those fees, that's designed to take money out of the system. The longer you say, no, we're going to ignore that and throw the money back into the game, you've just added about an hour to your playtime if you use the... Now, that may be what you want to do. I'm not going to judge you it, because there's no such thing as a bad game. You can have a bad game experience, but it's not going to be a bad game. If you're with people you want to spend time with, if you're with someone you really want to spend a lot of time with, if you're drinking an appropriate <laughs> beverage, you know... <laughs> You can have a good game experience even in like, hey, let's just throw all the money in free parking. Let's have this game go on forever. That's nice, dear. So uh, anyway, you tend to not have dice and spinners used for luck-based outcomes. You may have dice used for more of a probability-based outcome, you know, something based upon the roll of two dice with a probability curve. But you're not going to have a flat chance of rolling everything from one to six. You don't tend to have that kind of luck in these games. They, have, they are elegant. Now, this term of elegant is hotly debated in the board game community. What does elegant design mean? But basically, if you remember I talked about those historical war games, the reason why that they're more like a simulation is because they have very detailed rules. If a player moves a general from here to here, and, da -da -da -da, and it goes on and on and on. And so what you have in a lot of these games is more consistent rules across the game experience. Not a lot of exceptions to try to remember. And the games tend to be made with nice quality components. They're nice games to fondle. 
you know, they've got wood, they're pretty plastic, there's a nice tactile experience you get with a lot of these games. So this is some of the common points of difference. Now there's a site out there called BoardGameGeek.com. If you haven't seen it and you want to learn more about board games, I'll point you to it. It is a user-generated database with over 50,000 games. And for each game, people have made all, they, they've recorded a lot of metadata about each game. There's discussion forums where people talk about the games and talk about the games, and oh my God, won't they shut up about the games. Um, but there's places where you can post videos and things like that. There's over, there, there's coming up on 400,000 users of BoardGameGeek. So it's a big site. And what, they, what I actually took from there was a set of the board game mechanisms that they have people describe games using. So I started with this list, and I removed, games, I removed mechanisms that were really focused towards the war game genre and towards the party game genre. Not that these genres are bad, but that I don't have you for eight hours. So, <laughs> so I'm choosing to, to narrow in on a subset of these, on these game mechanisms. And that's what I'm going to talk about now. So now we're getting to the point of the talk. Now, by the way, my hope in today's talk is that you're going to go away from this talk having increased your toolbox of what game mechanisms are out there. So that if you ever find yourself wanting to make a game, a board game or a video game or any sort of game with strategy components, that you might do something else than a roll and move game. That if you're going to make an educational game, it won't, dear God, be like flashcards with a board, you know, that you may look at some of these things. Now, I've grouped these into uh, seven categories. Now, these categories I came up with for today's talk. These are not yet, you know, well-established and well-researched, but this is hitting research area number two while I'm here, is to begin to really look at how to talk about board game mechanisms. So I'm going to talk about these categories of action selection, talk, and that's where you're choosing what to do in a game. Talk about uh, mechanisms about resource collection. How do you get stuff? Talk about mechanisms of logistics. How do you move stuff? Talk about mechanisms of conflict resolution. How do you deal with it when people have a fight? Mechanisms of visual and spatial skills. So these are mechanisms related to seeing stuff, seeing patterns. Mechanisms related to player roles and mechanisms related to changing up the game between plays. So I'm going to talk about board game mechanisms in each of these categories. I'm going to give you an example of the mechanism. I'm going to point you to a game that uses that mechanism to give you an idea of where, what game you might want to play if you want to explore that more. And the hope is that when you're done here, you'll have some new ideas, some, some new concepts. And what I want to do is actually take this work and create a cookbook out of it, the board game creation cookbook with the idea that I want to help teachers and librarians that want to facilitate board and card game creation programs in schools and libraries to have more ideas on how to help the students create games. Just like librarians actually take information resources and map them to specific things in the curriculum, I want to do the same thing with these, these game mechanisms, that they'll be mapped to specific curricular topics. So if you've just taught Romeo and Juliet, here are four board game mechanisms that you could use to have your students make board games around what you just learned in Romeo and Juliet. That's big research project number two while I'm on my sabbatical here, is to really create that resource for teachers and librarians. So an example of a board game mechanism is roll and move. This is, this is one of the oldest board game mechanisms. This is the game of the goose uh, from the 1600s. This used a basic roll and move around the track. Uh, Monopoly uses a roll and move mechanism. The thing about roll and move mechanisms is it reduces your choice of what to do. You roll the dice and, and that, what, that tells you what to do. Backgammon uses a roll and move mechanism but gives you a little bit more choice of what to do. But typically you're not going to see these roll and move mechanisms. Instead you're going to see the ability for someone to choose the action that they're going to take. So if I were to redesign Monopoly, for example, I would allow people to choose an action. Rather than roll the dice and move somewhere, I would say, you can choose. Pick any property and put it up for auction. A lot of people don't know that Monopoly actually has auction rules. 
that if you don't want to buy something, it goes up for auction. Well, wouldn't it be more interesting if you could pick any property on your board on, the, on your turn, and it goes up for auction, and everyone bids on it every turn. Then everyone's involved. You want to see what's going on. Or you could upgrade a property, or you could draw a card, or you could trade properties, or you could get out of jail. But then you need some way of having bad things happen to you, because in Monopoly, the dice also sometimes have bad things happen. So I'd say now you have to draw one of these cards or draw a chit from a, a bag to see if you draw a property that you don't own, and then you pay taxes, or if you draw a taxes chip or something like that. What this then would do is that would ensure that everyone on their turn has something good and bad happen to them. As compared to Monopoly right now, where when you roll the dice and move, something good or bad happens to you. And you can be very sad in Monopoly if many bad things happen to you. So this is concept of action selection. Now, there are many different ways to do the selection of actions. So the first type of action selection, oh, and I'm going to talk about each of these six. I won't read them off to you because you're going to have slides on each one. So simultaneous action selection. This is actually at the core of Adelphi Flishtet, which has been re-released in the US as Hoity Toity. And by the way, this whole PowerPoint presentation will be made available online, attached to the audio that's being recorded as well, so you can get at these things without trying to write them all down. So, simultaneous action selection. The idea of this mechanism is that you, everyone has cars that represent the possible actions. In this game, you're trying to build up a collection of antiques. And so on each turn, you can either go to the auction house to buy stuff, or you can go and put on an exhibit in your castle to get prestige, and that's the goal of the game. So you have to balance buying things, going shopping, and building up your prestige. But everyone decides what they're going to do secretly. So everyone decides if they're going to go shopping or if they're going to go and put on display. And then everyone that goes shopping has different values of checks. And everyone picks one of these secretly to determine who wins the bid. Any time you can play one of these thieves, which lets you steal checks or artwork from other people. So you're always involved, but you're deciding at the same time what it is that you want to do. Now, another way of choosing what you want to do is something called an action point allowance system. Now, this game is called Tikal, and in Tikal, you're playing an explorer wandering around the woods, digging up trophies, digging up pyramids, digging up treasures. And the way you decide what to do is you have action points. So the, rather than, say, choose something from this list, this is the player aid for that game, you have 10 action points per turn. And so different things you want to do, move the guy around on the board, dig up a treasure, cost different amounts of points. What this allows you to do from a design perspective is then have actions that are of different power. You could have some really strong actions or some weak actions and allow people to fairly choose different sets of actions. So this is called the action point system. The disadvantage of the system is you to run into something called analysis paralysis. Analysis paralysis is a term used in the board game space where you look at everything that you can do and your mind goes, <laughs> and you lock up. And so the problem with this kind of system is there's a lot of permutations of how that could come up with 10 points and a whole world of things they can do. So people tend to get kind of locked up, brain locked about this kind of thing. So another mechanism to help avoid that came out with this game called Thebes, which is another game about exploring. But in this game, you're running around, you're getting training, you're going and digging, and you're trying to dig up great treasures and then put them on display. And what it did that was cool is it had a time track. So for it, you could choose to do an action, and an action would take so much time. For example, if you wanted to go dig, you had this little wheel. And on this wheel, you would look to see how, how much digging you wanted to do. There are little bags, and you draw out tokens, how many tokens you wanted to draw out. It would tell you how many weeks it took you to do that. So I might say, I'm going to go to a dig site, and I'm going to draw 12 tokens. Well, I'm going to be out of play for 10 weeks. Someone else can do things that take less time. And so the way this game worked is the player whose turn it was was the person who'd used the least amount of time. So you could do big moves, but then you'd wait 
and wait, or he could do lots of little moves in a row. So it was a clever way to again have actions that were of differing power, and you had to balance the time you spent doing stuff. Now, another way of selecting actions was, was brought out in this game called Puerto Rico, variable phase order. Now, what Puerto Rico is, it's a game where you are growing crops, you're using buildings to process those crops, and then you have to decide if you want to send the crops back home for prestige and glory, which helps you win the game, or you want to sell the crops for money, which helps you build more buildings and get more stuff. And you've got to balance those two things. But what made Puerto Rico interesting is rather than have you do things in a turn in order, they took the different things you could do, like grow crops, process crops, ship crops home, and turn them into these tiles. And on your turn, you pick one of those tiles. You say, I want to build a new building. So you build a new building, then everyone else gets to build a new building, but then that tile is out of play until everyone's had a turn. So what this did is it changed up the order of actions in each turn and really changed up the way the game went because you were having to think, well, what do I, how can I benefit, but everyone else can't benefit? So this concept really changed up the way we thought about games. Now, uh, because we like farming so much in our German games, there's a game called Agricola, which is a game about farming. You are a farm. This is someone's farm at the end of the game. So these represent fields they've built with carrots and and wheat they're growing and they have a house with people in the house and these represent different sorts of animals and in the game you're building up your farm. Boy, that sounds exciting, doesn't it? Um, it's actually a lot of fun though. What you're doing is this, this worker placement concept is you're sending your workers, your family members out to do stuff. So the way it goes is everyone goes around the table and everyone takes one of those workers and puts it somewhere on the board. So they can put it here and say, I want to get the reed or I want to get the clay or I want to get build some fences or whatever. And the trick is, if I put something there, no one else gets to put something there. So you take turns and everyone claims the action they want to do, and then you could do all of the actions that are on the board, and you build up your stuff that way. So that adds this whole thing of, well, so-and-so wants to take the action I want, so I better jump in there. So in this sort of game, this game me mechanism is good if you have a lot of stuff you want to let people do. So in this game, you'll have 14 or 15 or 20 different actions you could do. You can take three of them, but you're fighting with everyone else to determine which three you're going to take. Now, a fairly new mechanism that's come up is the mechanism of deck building. So Dominion was the, the first big game that, that talked about this. It actually won one of the Game of the Year awards that we talked about earlier. And what goes on in, in Dominion is you have 10 of these cards. And in each game, these are a different set of cards. There's 25 possible cards. And each of these cards are a stack of cards that's the same thing. And these cards have your game actions. Now, the goal in Dominion is to get as many of those point cards as you can. And the way you do that is you spend the money that you start with to buy these actions, and those actions let you get points and other cards and things like that. So you're creating a little, bit, a little engine for yourself. And what you do is on your turn, you draw five cards, you spend some of your money to buy an action to use later in the game, and that goes in your deck. Later on, when you run through your cards, you shuffle up your deck, and then you draw again. So now you're going to start to get some of these actions. And you use these actions to get other actions. And you sort of build up and up and up until you run out of several piles. So the idea of Dominion and other deck-building games is by the end, you have created a subset of actions you can take in the game that no one else can take in the game. And so that's why this is such a variable game, because each time you play, you can say, well, in this game, I want to get a lot of money. In this game, I want to get a lot of cards. In this game, I want to attack everyone else a lot. So you can build up the sort of deck that you want to build up. So those are different ways to select actions. Now let's talk about different ways to collect stuff. So in games, many times you're out there collecting stuff. The most common thing that's used is set collection. The idea is you want to collect stuff that looks alike. 
So rummy or rummy cub, the idea is you're trying to build up little straights or, or get all the numbers of a type. Monopoly is about set collection. Hey, here's a little known fact about Monopoly. You know, Monopoly as we have today actually isn't the full game of Monopoly as it was designed. Monopoly was originally designed as a game to talk against capitalism and against monopolies. The Monopoly we play today is only half of the original game. In the original game, you built up your monopolies, you built up your engine, and then as you got too big, you collapsed upon your own weight. (laughs) (coughs) But they decided that might not sell. (laughs) And so they put out Monopoly the way it is today. But in Monopoly, you're trying to collect sets. Well, the set collection concept has been brought over to these modern games as well. Ticket to Ride is a game. Again, another Spiel des Jahres winner. Um, With Ticket to Ride, you collect these train cards and play them to play trains to connect different cities on this map. Now, if you notice, many of the cities only have one path between them, which means when one person has has claimed a route, no one else can. And why that's mean is because everyone has secret routes. So I may be trying to connect uh, New Orleans to Seattle, and you may be trying to uh, connect El Paso to New York City. And so we're going to be fighting to see who can get the route, but we don't know each other's routes. And so it's a nice game. This is one of the best gateway games. I use this to introduce people to the world of modern games because I can say it's like Rummy, but you have a purpose. You, know, you have a goal of what you're doing. Set collection has been used in a lot of different games, whether it's collecting zoos of nice, pretty animals or collecting Egyptian monuments. You know, set collection continues to be one of the more popular mechanisms in a lot of these games. Set collection is also part of Settlers. In Settlers, as you know, you're trying to collect these sets that it shows because you want to build up your infrastructure. The way it works at the start of each turn, someone rolls the dice, and anyone with a piece that matches the die roll gets to get this resource. And so you want to build up more of those pieces by collecting sets. But it also has trading. Trading is what keeps Settlers interesting because you're always engaged in the game. On your, your turn, you can trade with any of the other players. It keeps you involved. And that's an element you're going to see in a lot of these modern games, ways to keep you involved in the game. Now, another game with trading elements and another game about German farming is uh, Bonanza, Bean Farmer. And so in Bonanza, what you're doing is you have a hand of beans. And with that hand of beans, you have two bean fields in front of you. And a bean field can only have one type of bean. The more beans you can plant in that field, the more points it's worth. The mean part about the game is that each turn you have to play the card that's on this side of your hand. You cannot reorder the cards in your hand. So you can see that this card's going to have to be played. Now, if this doesn't match one of your two fields, then you, are, you say bad words. You're sad because you're going to have to dig up one of your fields to plant this new bean. So that's where the trading comes in. On everyone's turn, you can offer them trades. So you might say, hey, I wanna, I'll trade you this for whatever crap you happen to have. It's fine, because your goal is hand management. You want to get the junk out of your hand. Another game using hand management is modern art. Now, modern art is a classic game where you have pieces of art in your hand, and you're trying to, keep the, you're trying to make the most money out of it. And the way you make money out of the art in your hand is you sell it to other players. And the way you sell it is through auctions. Now, if you want to explore different types of auctions, modern art is the game to try. Because each piece of art has a symbol which tells you what type of auction you're going to use. So you could have to do an open auction, where it's just open bidding. Everyone calls out numbers. Or a double auction, where you actually play a second card and people are bidding on both. Or a sealed auction, where you put your money in your hand and on the count of three you show it. And then you say, crap, because you just spent way too much. Or a fixed price auction where you say, you can buy it for X, and it goes around the table. If no one buys it, you have to buy it for X. 
um, or a once-around auction where people bid, but they only get one shot at bidding. So if you really want to explore auction mechanisms, this is a great game to do it because you get to explore five different mechanisms in the game. Now what you're trying to do in this game, however, is build up art that you think is going to be worth a lot of money. So it also is a stock holding type game. And so what you're doing with, with Acquire, which is another stock game, and Acquire was actually, I should take a moment to talk about, Sid Saxon made Acquire back in 1962. He was way ahead of his time with this game. This was the first game that came out where you didn't have normal turns to take in a board you were moving around in the U.S. It, it became, and it's continued to be in print during that time, but it really was far ahead of its time as far as game design. In Acquire, what you have is a hand of these tiles that no one else can see. And on your turn, you're going to get to play a tile. The tiles connect into hotel chains, and the more tiles in a hotel chain, the more money it's worth. Now, the reason why it's called Acquire is because when two hotel chains touch, the larger one swallows up the smaller one. And the person who has the most stock in the smaller one gets a big payout. So what you want to do in the game is you want to be in charge of the smaller ones to get these big benefits. So you're trying to always become acquired, and everyone has a little bit of hidden information. If you haven't tried Acquire, it still is a great game today, and it's one of many stock games that are out there. Tulip Mania that I talked about earlier, it's also a stock game. You're investing in tulips and trying to push that value up. Now, another game about building, those, building up sets of stuff is Raw. I talked about this a little bit earlier. I want to talk a little bit more of another element of Raw. So in Raw, you're trying to build up sets of leaders and sets of different artifacts and culture. And the way it works is on your turn, you have a bag, and the bag has all these tiles. You reach into the bag, and you draw out a tile, and you put it on this track in the middle. Now, there's bad stuff in the game, too. Tiles with a black border are bad. There's also a timer. Whenever you draw one of these Raw tiles, it goes on this timer across the board. Now, what's going on is on your turn, you can either add a tile to the stack or call an auction. Every player starts around with three of these yellow tiles, and this is what you're going to bid with in the auction. This is a different type of auction. And in this one, you can see everyone's tiles. So I may have the four, the eight, and the 13, and I may look around and say, hey, if I play the eight, I can win this unless I make that person play his really high tile. So I may choose a good time to call the auction. Um, but what happens if that track fills up? No one gets to use their tiles. So this is a pressure luck game in that you're trying to decide, am I going to go for it and get some stuff, or am I going to hope and hope that it works out? And if you're the last player left in the round, it really is pressure luck because everyone stands around and chants, rah, 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 trying to get these, hope these tiles come out of the bag because if you're by yourself, you're just drawing and adding to this stack, and at any point you can say, all right, I'm done, and cash in your tile for the stack. But if you draw too many of these, then the round ends and you're out of luck. You don't get anything for it. So it's a pressure luck mechanism. Now, another game about building up ancient wonders is Seven Wonders. So Seven Wonders is another, uh, another award-winning game. And in this game, a lot like Raw, you're building up sets of stuff. But it uses a mechanism called card drafting. Now, what happens in card drafting is you have a hand of cards. You get to pick one, and you'll play that card, and then you pass the rest of the cards to the next player. What keeps the game interesting is that everyone has a hand of cards at the same time. So you're always making decisions. The other nice thing about this game is it plays seven people. So you can have a lot of people involved, and everyone's always playing the game. So with card drafting, not only are you looking at this stack of cards saying, I can have one of these, what fits best with my sets? But you're also saying, hey, that guy who's getting ready to get these cards, he's got a whole bunch of this card. I don't want him to have this one. So I may take this one anyway just to spite him. And so in card drafting, you're trying to build your best set of cards while trying to keep really good stuff from passing through your hands to the next players. So now let's talk a little bit about logistics. Now that you've got this stuff, what are you going to do with it? Well, you need to send it around the world. And so one way is through pickup and deliver games. 
So pick up and deliver games. The idea behind these games is that you're trying to deliver cubes home. So for example, this yellow city really wants to have that yellow cube. And so the player can deliver that yellow cube to the yellow city and make money. What you're doing in the game is you're laying track and you're timing when it is you want to try and get these cubes. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of fighting over, so right now, for example, you've got these purple cubes here, which they could be delivered here by the white player. This disc indicates the white player built this track, or they could be delivered up here by the green player. And so these two players are now gonna be fighting to see who gets to deliver those cubes and make money off of it. So this is a pick up and deliver game, a logistics game, where it's about moving stuff around on the board. A much older pick-up-and-deliver game is called Empire Builder from the 1980s. Still a popular game. With Empire Builder, rather than having tiles that you play, you actually draw with crayons. And there's a whole series of games out there called the Crayon Rail Games. And the, in the Crayon Rail Games, what you're doing is you're drawing on a map, drawing and connecting cities with lines, and then you get cards that are contracts to say, you know, deliver tourists to New York City. So there's certain places that produce tourists, so you still go to a place that makes tourists, pick them up, drive them on your line, and drop them off. So it's a pick up and deliver game, but you're actually drawing the track. Another game that used this concept of drawing track is Funkenschlag, which is a German game about power. And the idea of Funkenschlag is you're trying to build up networks in order to deliver power to different parts of Germany. Now, does this name sound familiar to anyone? Does this game, anyone know what game this is leading into? Power Grid. This was reimagined as Power Grid because what happened is people played this and they found it too complex. They found there were too many ways to actually go from point to point and they spent a lot of time calculating values. So the designer, Friedemann Fries, created Power Grid which uses the same concept but rather than you draw the lines, you just claim a route and the cost is already on the route. And this game actually, though, has other interesting mechanisms going on as well. This is a good Franken game. A Franken game is a game that has three or four different mechanisms that mashes them all together. In Power Grid, you're trying to supply power to cities. And the winner of the game is the person who supplies the most cities with power. You're going to do this by buying power plants. And each power plant can power a different number of cities with resources. And you're going to bid for these. So you have an auction mechanism going on here. But in order to get the resources, you have a, a commodity market here. And so as people buy stuff, the price goes up, and as they get rid of stuff, the price goes down. And then you spend your stuff to power your plants, to power your cities, to win the game. So if you want to explore a way that you can put different mechanisms together, Power Grid is a good game to check out. Now, sometimes you fight. Sometimes you have conflict in games, and there are different ways that games resolve conflicts. Now, one of the oldest ways that we resolve conflicts is through rock, paper, scissors. The idea that you have three different choices, each one beats another choice. And that's actually at the core of the combat mechanism in the new Civilization board game. So Civilization is a game that's come out in many forms throughout the years. There's been the original Civilization, which came out before the computer game, but then there have been several attempts to make board games since that time. This one, which came out last year, pretty accurately represents the, the Civilization computer game. So if you like that computer game and you want to try a board game version, I'll point you to this. But the combat mechanism in this is a rock, paper, scissors combat mechanism that you have troops on the ground, you have mounted troops, and you have artillery troops, and each one beats another type in kind of a circle. Each one's good at beating another type. Now one of the ways that we've developed to have conflict, conflict resolution is through dice rolling. Risk is a game many of you also has player elimination. You know, it's a kind of an old school design. But I don't know if you know this, there's a new redesigned Risk out. If you see a Risk that looks like this, it's the new version. And what the new version they've done, which is quite clever, 
they've added goals. So now the goal of risk is not to take over the world. There are different goals in each game. So, this, so there's small goals and big goals. Control North America. Um, you know, take over an entire continent in a turn. So what these goals add is now a point to risk. And it shortens the game length considerably of something you're fighting over. So if you liked risk, but you didn't like risk, uh, <laughs> you may want to take a look at what risk has done, how they've redeveloped it. It's been interesting to watch as the large game companies, well, the large game company, because Hasbro has actually bought out almost every other game company that's out there that does these mass market games, um, with the exception of Mattel's fighting against them. But Has- Hasborg, as, as we jokingly call it, has bought many companies out there. But they have realized this world of modern games has some things to, to, to offer. Now, another game about putting dudes on a map. These types of games are called dudes on a map game, D-O-A-M. So you have a bunch of dudes on a map and they're going to fight. So El Grande was a dudes on a map game that used uh, area control. It was one of the first games that did area control. And the idea of area control is in this game, you're trying to get these cubes, which represent your guys, onto different countries in this map of Spain. And what will happen is, at certain points in the game, you'll resolve scoring. And the way it'll work is the person who has the most cubes in an area gets that many points. The person with the second most cubes gets that many points, and the person who's in third place gets that many points. So your strategy choices are interesting. You have to decide. Well, like the yellow player said, I want this! Go away! While <coughs> the red player put a little bit in a lot of different places. So the question is, do you go for a few first places, or do you go for lots of second and third places? And you've got to balance those two things. And there have been a lot of games that have used this area control or area influence concept now, having the cubes in there is kind of like the idea of voting. Voting was, is the core mechanism of a game called Lifeboats. Lifeboats is an evil, wonderful game. Because what goes on in Lifeboats is you're all on a sinking ship. And the game has a number of different colors of lifeboats. And all the lifeboats are trying to sail into the island. So during each turn, it's all based on voting. First, you vote which of the lifeboats is going to get a leak. So everyone has secret cards. You decide what color of the lifeboat is going to get a leak. Then everyone who is on that ship has to decide who gets thrown overboard. So they vote. So as you can imagine in this place, everyone on the ship has one vote. Well, now this is interesting. You don't have any money. You don't have any other way to bribe people. This is a game of alliances and stabbing people in the back at the right time or a game of get the leader. You know? <laughs> But this, is the, this game is a lot like a reality show because you very much are like, well, I'll help you two stay alive here if you help me over here. Because the third vote is to decide which of the boats gets to move closer to land. And the goal is to get as many of your people up in land as you can. And what happens is during each round, there's a point where people panic and everyone has to jump out of boats and jump into other boats. So the alliance structures get mixed up from round to round. So it's a really, if you like this idea, sort of a pure negotiation game. I was actually playing it with my family because that's what we do now. I bring back the games, and now I'm older. I can say, we're going to play a board game. And so <laughs> we were playing this game. And so I have two brothers, and the three of us were in the boat, and it was a situation where my mother was making the decision as to who goes overboard. <laughs> you wouldn't throw me out. I'm your oldest. You always loved him more. <laughs> so you know what happens in that case? I get it, because I'm the one that taught the game. You know? But that's fine. So... Other, other uh, mechanisms out there can test visual and spatial skills. So there's a game called Carcassonne. Carcassonne is a game about building up a world. The game of Carcassonne starts with one tile on the table. And on your turn, you pick a tile from the bag, and you line it up with the tiles that are already out there. 
connecting roads to roads and fields to fields and cities to cities. And then you can put one of your little meeples. This is actually the game that also created the term meeple, miniature people. And this symbol has actually now become the symbol of the Euro game world are these meeples. I actually have a stuffed one in my office. Um, and so you can choose to put one of your meeples on a board feature. And if it gets really big, it'll get you a lot of points. So part of what's going on in this game is you're trying to visualize where these developments could happen. To visualize, is this city going to get big? Well, probably. And so then you're going, but you, when you start out, it may be very small. So you're trying to visualize where things could go and then make that happen. Another game about uh, having visualization is Through the Desert by Reiner Knizia. Through the Desert actually is inspired by Go. Uh, Go, if you know the game Go, it's actually my favorite game I'll always suck at. Um, because it's, it's a very difficult game to try and, and get better at. And so with Through the Desert, what you're doing is you're playing these rows of pastel camels <laughs> with, with the goal of picking up pieces that, that represent water and touching palm trees, but more importantly, surrounding area, because you can get lots of good points from surrounding areas. And the thing about this game is they say it's the best pastel camel game ever made. <laughs> it's a very colorful game. Um, another colorful game that was a recent Spiel des Jahres winner was Quirkle. Quirkle is Scrabble for people who can't spell. <laughs> so Quirkle is about building patterns, but the idea in Quirkle is you're going to draw tiles, you'll have them in front of you just like in Scrabble, but with Quirkle, the words you make are either same shape, different colors, or same color, different shapes. So at most, it's a six-letter word because there's six colors and six shapes and you score more the longer that your word is. And you score lots more if you're a real jerk and you double up like this, playing it in two different ways. And you don't have to memorize all of the 97 two-letter words in order to do that like you do if you're in Scrabble. But anyway, um, so this is about pattern building, the idea of identifying patterns and being able to use them. Now, something else that's gone on in games is playing with player roles. So there are games out there that take away the idea that everyone's equal, but play with that concept. So one of them is called Pandemic. Pandemic is a cooperative game. And what's going on in Pandemic is you have these cubes that represent viruses that are taking over the world. And you're working together as a team of scientists trying to eliminate these different viruses. And things go very, very wrong. The game designer is actually quite evil because what's going on in the game, whenever you flip a card, you put cubes in that city. So all those cards go into the discard pile until a big nasty card comes up, ah, bad things happen. And when bad things happen, you take that stack of discarded cards, shuffle it up and put it right back on top of the draw deck. So now all those come back out and hit you again and again. So it's actually a hard game to win, but it's a game that, that, uh, that encourages people to work together. Now, what actually happens with some of these cooperative games is it encourages everyone to listen to the one loud guy. And that's one problem with the purely cooperative games, is you get one player that's, and basically, it's a large puzzle. Cooperative games are a puzzle with multiple people working together with multiple resources. And they try to put things in the games that prevent that, to say, oh, you can't actually mention the cards you have. People get around that. An interesting way they've got around that is by creating games that have partnerships. So partnerships in games is where you have different people working together. In this game called Descent, you have one person working against everyone else. So this is a take on the old role-playing games, a dungeon-stomping game, where you have the, large, the game, the person who's running all the monsters versus the heroes who are working together. So this changed the player structure, so you had one versus many. Now, Dungeons & Dragons actually rolled out their own board game last year, and this is a purely cooperative game. So in this game, you don't have to have one person running the monsters. Everyone's working together against, against the dungeon. But then things got interesting, and we got not-so-cooperative games. So 
one of the first not-so-cooperative games was Shadows Over Camelot. The idea of Shadows Over Camelot is you're all knights of the round table. You're all going to go out, you're going to beat up the bad guys, you're going to save Camelot, all except for one person, the traitor. And the trick is, at the start of the game, everyone gets a card face down. Most of them say loyal, but one of them says traitor. Whoever is the traitor is trying to make everyone lose the game. And the other players not only have to defeat the odds to save Camelot, but they have to unmask the traitor as well. They have to figure out who's the bad guy. Now, the game is a little evil in that if there's five players, you actually use six cards, one of which is a traitor. So it could be the traitor's not in the game. Which, of course, if you're the traitor, you're going to remind everyone of that rule on a regular basis. Um, another game that took this model and pushed it forward is Battlestar Galactica. Um, if you're a fan of this series, I'd highly suggest you check out this game. It's got the same element where you have players that are Cylons or the bad guys. Everyone's working together against horrible odds to try and stay alive, but some of the players are working for the bad guys. And the evil twist this game does to you is halfway through the game, you get a new card and you may have just become a bad guy. So at that point, it's, it's, it's quite creepy. My Board Games with Scott series, I actually did my review of this like a reality show. So I, we actually play through a game. I pull players out. I have them talk about who they think is the Cylon and things like that. <laughs> so we had little confessionals. Actually, I had three booths going on as I filmed it. So if you go to boardgameswithscott.com, you can find 70 of these videos, 70 of these games talked about. Search for Battlestar Galactica, and you can find Battlestar Galactica, the reality show. And I will say that one took a very long time to film. So I never did one like that again. Now, in order to keep a game life going on, a lot of games have come up with ways to be variable. So one way is through variable player powers. Cosmic Encounter is a game that's been redesigned quite a few times. The newest version uh, has, came out in 2008. Uh, it, was, it was actually designed back in the 70s by Eon Games. And the idea of Cosmic Encounter, it's a very simple space combat game. I have spaceships. I fly them to your planet. I attack your planet. I play a numbered card. You play a numbered card. High total wins, basically. There's some other complexities. And one of the big complexities is that everyone is an alien race, and everyone gets to break the rules of this simple game in some way. So every time you play, you have to deal with the fact that you have four or five different rules in the game that are in play, and each player is breaking the rules in their own way. And so that keeps the game very fresh, because every time you play, it feels very different. Now, another game that varied things up is our friend Settlers of Catan, with the modular board concept. So this board comes apart in different tiles, and because the tiles and the numbers on the tiles are separate, Every time you play, it's a different feel because you're going to mix up the tiles and put them out. You're going to mix up the numbers and put them out. So you could have games where certain crops or products are less frequent to come out. And Settlers then got a pretty clever idea by putting out an expansion called Seafarers, which added oceans. Now with oceans, you no longer have to have one island. You can have three or four little islands that are going on. And so this idea of having games that vary it up quite a bit. Remember this one, Dominion? Now, for each game of Dominion you play, you use 10 of these decks. Now, for Dominion, they've put out quite a few expansions with multiple cards. That is actually every Dominion card that's currently out there. And for each game, you use 10 of them. Now, you always use the money and things like that, but you use 10, 10 of these cards. So as you can see, now in Dominion, there is a lot of variability in the game. So this is the newest game we're talking about called Quarriers. Quarriers takes that concept of Dominion where you have these cards, and it's like a deck building game, but it's called a dice building game. So you have a little bag, and in the bag go dice. And on your turn, you spend your resources to buy a new dice and add it to the bag. The cards 
tell you what that dice does. So every one of these dice I have represent one iteration of this person in my army. And on my turn, I reach in, I pull out a handful of dice, and I roll them. That'll let me buy more cards or attack other players or, or try and win victory points. And what this game did that was clever, the modular part of it, is that there are different copies of this for the same dice. So each color of dice has, with the original game, has three different characters. All, they're very different in their abilities. And so you have a wildly different game each time you play. And what's cool about this, coming back to the game design concept, is this is really ripe for someone making their own game. You could make your own card to play this game. You could actually make your own, a whole set of cards to play the game, and it would take very little to do because all you have to have is one copy of the card with the ability, and all the dice are still out there. And I'm always looking for games that work, would work well in a classroom to say, hey, let's all make our own games. Let's make Quarriers themed in Ro Romeo and Juliet. Let's make so you could see how you could actually work with that a little bit. So this is from BoardGameGeek.com. These are actually the top 20 rated games in BoardGameGeek. So what goes on is, is all of the 400,000 BoardGameGeek users have the ability to rate games from 1 to 10 using whatever scale they want to. Um, and these are actually over the average and dropping out the games without many ratings. These are the top, top 20 games. As you can see, I've talked about a lot of them here. Now what's interesting is, let me compare that to GameRankings.com, where I took the top 20 video games. And again, what this site does is this takes different ratings from different websites and combines them together. What do you see about this list? Does anyone notice anything? Yeah? A lot of sequels, a lot of games with numbers, a lot of reiterations of the same thing. Now, in this case, you've got a couple. You've got Dominion Intrigue, which is a build on Dominion. You've got Commands and Colors Ancients, which is one of the Commands and Colors series. You've got Steam, which is a re-release of Age of Steam. But all the rest of these games are unique properties. While in the video game space, well, you've got a lot of iteration. And a number of people that have studied video and board game design talk about the fact that right now, at least, the board game design world is quite healthy, that there's a lot of innovation going on. And it's because of this that I want to bring it back into play with constructionism and say, you know, there's a lot of good stuff going on right now that we could tap, not only for making board and card games, but for also leading into video game design. So it's kind of where I'm going to be heading while I'm here for the next, next, next nine months. I want to work on creating a tool to help educators and librarians use these mechanisms to help their students make games. Um, the way I, and, the, and my goal is to actually create a toolkit that would let a teacher in five one-hour sessions, after a teacher has taught a topic, five one-hour sessions go from start to done with board game prototypes using a toolkit, using worksheets and, and guidance to help them go along. And my overall design constraint on all these games is you can't ask questions. The idea is that the game play has to demonstrate what it is you're trying to teach. Because what they find is when kids do this, when kids create games, they learn the topic matter better. And so that's really what I want to try to create. Ideally, I see the school library as being the resource for this. So what I'm trying to do now is I'm working with school librarians because the cool thing about school librarians, I've worked with some folks who are working directly with educators. If you get one school librarian who gets on with your research or your project, all of a sudden they're going to tell 20, 50, 100 teachers about that project as compared to trying to tell one teacher at a time. So I'm trying to empower the body of school librarians out there to say, hey, let's help you all learn how to make good games so that you can then help all of your teachers do it in your library. So that's why I keep coming back to libraries, because that's, that's got a network effect of getting a lot of teachers involved. 
Um, I need to give thanks to the community at BoardGameGeek.com. The pictures that you saw all came out of the BoardGameGeek.com website, and also I got data from them about these board game mechanisms. Um, if you want to learn more about what I'm doing with this project, I've got a new blog at BecausePlayMatters.com that I'm going to be keeping up to date with, with my publications and writings and thinkings about this. And we've already talked about BoardGamesWithScott.com to find the videos. I'm active on a board game podcast called On Board Games. If you go to iTunes, you can find it on On Board Games. Or you can reach out to me at scott at scottnicholson.com. And what I'd like to do is invite you, since I'm here for nine months, I really want to get involved. If something you've heard me say is something you'd like to have involved with one of your projects or you think I'd be useful in some way, let me know. Because I'd like, one of my reasons for coming here is to really learn about what's going on here with game design and game exploration and take that back with me. So we now have some time for questions and comments. And I think we have a microphone that will go around because they are recording this so it can go out. Thank you. <laughs> so if you've got a question, uh, put your hand up I'll move over the mic. And again, this is, there's no PA. It's not being amplified. Uh, it's just being recorded. Excuse me. <laughs> oh. oh, I see. Yeah, they're making a podcast of this for the podcast series. So. Got it. Um, so you mentioned a lot of uh, game mechanics I was wondering where you think games like set fit in, and also I was wondering about like Clue or like Sleuth mm -hmm. and where that fits in, because it's not like an auction game. Or right, anything like so that. set actually, so the question was about games like set and games like uh, Clue or Sleuth. So set is a pattern matching game, and originally actually I did have set as a pattern matching game up there, and I said, eh, maybe not. Uh, but so set is very much about uh, making patterns. Uh, Sleuth and Clue are actually a category of games, and now that I think about it, I wonder if deduction games are actually one of those board game mechanisms. They should be, and I will be adding that to the list, because the, the list I have here started with what Board Game Geek has used and developed. So part of what I'm going to be doing as I get to work with it is say, here's what needs to be added. So it may be that I miss deduction games, but that whole category of deduction games should very much be in here, where you're trying to deduce um, the answer based upon a situation. So that will be going in. Right, it's actually really about the pattern matching concept. So it's about how quickly can you match a pattern, that pattern being in sets, you're trying to quickly determine out of 12 cards which three of them have all the features alike, like color and shape and things like that, or all the features are different. So it's a speed pattern matching game. Actually, I think the reason why I took it out is because I decided not to look at party games too much, and, and it's more of a sort of party social game. But uh, it's, it, it fits very well into that, the pattern matching concept, because that's what, that's what it rewards. How fast can you, can you match patterns? Hi, Scott. Um, so, a uh, quick comment. It's funny that I didn't know there was a pandemic board game. I just remember playing the web version where it's where you're actually the virus and you're okay. iterating yep. as the virus and then you can never get into Madagascar because the president always closes it immediately. <laughs> um, I was really interested in your first research question. Um, you mentioned uh, having people play the same board games um, in different formats, video games and, and, uh, uh, and then measuring how their social interaction changed. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you might be thinking about measuring how social interaction may change uh, and, and what changes about it and what you're even you know, measuring. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other thing was, and I wasn't sure about this, 
is it the same groups of people playing the the games, or are you taking different groups of people and comparing the games in different ways? Because I could see that people who are friends might play two versions of a game differently than two different sets of people playing the two different types of the game. So to answer your second question first, from my observation in working with libraries, if the group of people know each other, they tend to have more similar interactions regardless of the type of game they're playing. So that's what I'd find in the library. If you had a group of friends come in together, if they all playing the same video game, staring at the screen, they'd be interacting. But if you took people that didn't know each other in the sort of library or educational setting um, and they'd all be at, staring at the screen, they would rarely interact. And so that's part of what I want to study with this, is I want to have one study where I take groups of people that know each other and as a group they play different games, have them play them in different orders to, to deal with order effect and all that, but then take other groups of people who come in where none of them know each other and they're all mixed up between games so that there's no friendships that are formed between different games. So, because, like you say, I've noticed a difference whether they know each other or not, so I need to separate that out when I'm studying it. As far as what I'm studying, this is actually getting to where I want to work with someone who studies this sort of thing. Um, a very common thing to, it's, it's whether I want to do something quantitative or qualitative. So quantitative, I could measure things like utterances, you know, and categorize the utterances that are made um, in different types, whether it's a solo utterance, it's an utterance to another player, that would be something to count. Or I could approach it more qualitatively where you're looking at the quality of the interactions going on. But this is why in this project I'd like to work with someone who does that sort of studying so they can help bring the measurement tools to what's going on. Because that's what you do in, when, when you're getting into a project and you've got a good idea but you don't have an expertise in something, then you want to partner with someone who does have an expertise in what sort of things are measured. So that's getting to that point where that's a little out of my expertise but I want to partner with someone who we could work together in exploring this topic. So if that is you, please talk to me. <laughs> So um, one of the things that you mentioned that, that kind of stuck in my head, and it was actually something you mentioned kind of earlier, and it, it, it resonated with the conversation that Jason Beggy and I have been having for a long time now. Um, you mentioned that one of the things that's really nice about board games is that the system is transparent, right? It's kind of, uh, it's immediately accessible. It's, it it's available be, yeah. to you, or it can be. Right. Um, because the rules of the system are being orchestrated by the players of the game, right? Whereas software, um, there's less transparency, perhaps. You might need to have the software to play the game. Um, the interesting thing about that, of course, is that with software, the playing of the game is attached to an object that you have to have in possession. In theory, I can play chess with anything, so long as I can you know, create a board and agree on the items. Um, so the, the question then is about you know, intellectual property, not necessarily in a, in a legal sense, um, but in the sense of, you know, with, with libraries and with, like, you know, what, what constitutes the game? I mean, are these board games you're buying just um, resources that are facilitating the play? Um, you know, are the rules designed by a designer and, and, and you know, are they then the, the creation of that, you know, person? Or, or does, you know, does it require the, the play somehow? Um, I, I know it's, it's kind of a weird... Weird question, but I think actually from a library perspective, it's interesting, right? Because um, you know, you put one you put one board game, and then everyone can go there and play that game there. Right. You've now limited the number of uh, you know instances of that board game being sold, perhaps because why why buy it at home? I can go to the library and play. Right, um, so. and that's actually no different. A lot of what I do when I talk about games in libraries is map things to what libraries have already been doing. So it's really no different than 
reading a book in a library, having a shared resource. The, uh, the, the right of first sale actually in, in allows the doctrine, this first sale doctrine allows that if you, in the U.S. at least, if you buy some media, something, you can then give that to someone else. It's up to you to give it or lend it out. And that's actually what's allowed libraries to exist is because of that doctrine. In other countries, that doctrine doesn't exist. So in some countries, the library and then the user actually pay every time an item is circulated. And there's a royalty fee that's collected and sent back to the authors for items that were circulated. And so in, in, I was over in Amsterdam looking at their libraries, and they have amazing public libraries there. In fact, I was stunned. The Amsterdam Public Library, I was working with them on, some, on some, doing some large um, uh, alternate reality game projects. And I was working with a group of students there for a week, and when we would go meet at the library, we'd meet there at their opening time of 10 o'clock, there would be 150 people waiting to get into the library. And it's because I was like, wow, what, what's going on here? To have a library card there costs you money. You actually have to pay to have a library card. Well, now that's interesting. What would happen here if you had to pay to have a library card? Well, libraries would do one of two things, you know, shape up or fail. You would have to make sure that you're providing enough value for people. So that's what they did is they made these amazing experiences. But also then you'd have to put money on that card to check things out. So it's, it's a, that's a case where <clears throat> different countries are rewarding the author. But as far as playing a game in the library and that experience, it's really no different than other forms of engaging with media in the library. And so it would be under those same rules. Other questions, comments, thoughts? Hello. Sorry, if uh, you might have covered this before I had to show up a tiny bit late, so feel free to say, go watch the podcast Okay. Um, what is... Uh, how do you balance chance and randomness with a board game, uh, and how does that play with strategy? Okay. So in designing a game, you have choices of chance versus skill. I'll give you an example that really uh, hones in on, on what you're thinking about. So there's a game out there called Crokinole. Crokinole is a game that is a large wooden board with discs, and you flick discs toward a hole in the middle of the board. And the person who's the best at flicking discs toward the hole in the middle of the board will win the game. There's another game out there called Tumbling Dice. And in Tumbling Dice, what you're doing is you're flicking dice towards the middle of a wedge-shaped board so they can fall off the sides. But your score is, the, the, the board is like a stair step, and the further down you are able to go, the higher the multiplier is on that step. And you multiply the step times the total of the dice. So you're, if, you get, if you do the best shot in the world, if it lands on a 1, that's going to be worth 4 points. If it lands on a 6, that's worth 4 times 6 for 24 points. So the difference is, I can pull out tumbling dice with people of a varied skill level, and they can have a fun experience with each other. Luck negates skill. So the more luck elements you put into a game, the wider the skill levels you're going to let be competitive at the game. The more you take out elements of luck from a game, the the higher the chances that a better player will always win. And that's, as a designer, you have to decide. So if you're making something as a family game, you're going to put in more elements of chance because you want to allow the kids to win sometimes. If you're making a game that you want to always have the better player win, you're going to remove more and more of those elements of chance. Now, when you bring a game in with multiplayers, now you introduce chaos as well. So when you bring in that third player, now you've got the chance and the skill in the game, but now you also have the chaos of this other player doing who knows what. Um, 
And so some people, I actually have a friend back home who is a very tactical mind. He can play games and really destroy you at them, but he can't play an auction game to save his life. And it's because I know where to stop bidding, because I know his tells. You know, and, and, and so I'll push him up, push him up, and I'll drop out. And I say, Scott, why do you always do this to me? I always get stuck paying for it. And he hasn't realized that those sort of elements that engage multiple players are a social aspect to the games. Yeah, until he watches this, and then he'll know. That's, actually, we talked about it. I said, that's because, it's a, that's because auctions are a social element. They're about reading the other players. It's not just this calculation of, oh, mathematically, I can go to this value and it will stay, still pay off. There's this extra thing of, well, mathematically, I can go to this value and pay off, and I can stick that guy for another 200 bucks, I bet you, if I push him up there. So it's that, then that's the other piece to deal with, is what do you introduce as far as chaos that other players can bring to the party? One other question I had for you was you were talking about all these different categories. Uh, and as a game designer yourself, were these categories categories that, that sort of exist out there and people design them by it? Or were you sort of analyzing games and breaking them down into their component parts after the fact? And how have your understanding of the different categories and the different components of games and the mechanisms of games informed your own subsequent game design? So the categories that I was using here came to life about three days ago, after I printed out all of those mechanisms, laid them out on a table, and said, dear God, how am I going to talk about 30 things? And I started saying, I need to organize them in some way. So that is as far as they've gone. Now, I will need to use categories, and I do see using them, because what I see working well with the categories is my goal is to do the sort of thing that librarians do, where you map information resources to curricular needs. I want to map game mechanisms to curricular needs. And I'll be using those categories to do so. So the categories are going to get refined and changed as I begin to use them for that purpose. That's the goal of my categorizing them, is so that I can help a librarian say, oh, you're teaching seventh grade science. You're going to want to look at mechanisms from these three categories. And so you take a class, you assign each group of kids a different mechanism, and say, all right, we just did the periodic table. You make a combat game. You make a set collection game. You make an auction game. And here's a mechanism to use. So yes, I will. But I haven't yet. <laughs> so the categories as they stand now were for today's talk, and, but they're my launching point. That's really, this is kind of my time. What's nice about a research leave is you can have time to sit there for four hours and look at a table with 30 things and say, how should these be organized? Hmm. <laughs> so that's kind of where I am at this point with that, with that organization. The good news is because I come out of library and information science, we actually have methods for doing classification and creating thesauri. And so as I start to build this, I'll go back and return to those methods to actually ensure that it's good. So that's where I'm going to be heading, is using the methods to create the SARI that come out of my discipline to help me do a good job with this. Other questions? If not, then I will thank you all for spending time with me. Um, and if you have thoughts, things you want to work with me over the next nine months, let me know. You can send me an email. Um, I'm working mainly in the Gambit Lab for now. I have an office there. Or you can find me at Simmons Hall, working with undergraduates there. I'm going to be running gaming programs down there. Yeah? I don't know. Will um, this talk be online? We will be putting it up, I believe, uh, cms.mit.edu. Uh, there is a, is, is either the colloquium link or a podcast link. Uh, and there's actually the whole RSS feed for it, so you can subscribe to all of them. Um, or if you're a Twitterer, you can find me on Twitter at S. Nicholson. Or if you're a Google Pluser, you can find me at Google Plus using Scott Nicholson. 
and I will be, I put all my stuff, or I'll all be on, actually it'll be linked to this new blog, becauseplaymatters.com. Why? Because play matters. <laughs> Uh, so uh, right after this, we have a reception. Uh, this is going to be on the third floor of the uh, the old Media Lab building, E15. Um, did, did I get that right? There you go. So um, not entirely sure exactly what room number it is, but if you follow <laughs> the crowd, you'll probably find it. So uh, again, thanks a lot, Scott. And uh, thank you. See you next week for next week's colloquium. <laughs>